Jesus, this morning we thank you for the power and the truth of your word. We ask that you would open our hearts and our minds, not just to receive new information, but Lord, to be shaped and to be transformed by you. Uh, Lord, that this would not just lead us to an encounter of knowing something about you, but that we would encounter you, yourself, through your word. So Lord, we know this is a living, uh, living word. Would you open our hearts to receive? Jesus, we pray that you would uh, be at work in us as a people and uh, call us deeper into yourself, we ask in your name. Amen. Amen. I can't get through this passage of Scripture, even as you were reading it, Rob, without thinking of that song. The You Are Chosen Generation starts bopping. Royal priesthood, the holy nation. Right? That's just, I just, you can't, you can't get away from it. I think we used to sing that about 30 years ago. Hey, that was, yeah? Okay. There we go. Brilliant. Uh, last week, uh, we've been walking through First Peter. Last week, we talked about the call that Peter has on the church to be hungry for God. I don't know, how many of you remember that, if you were here? A call to be hungry for God and for his word. A call not to grow stagnant. We talked about how uh, Peter's writing to believers calling them to be hungry for God and that means in some sense that you could know Jesus and not be growing in him you can have a relationship with someone but not uh, spend time with that person and choose not to develop that relationship right and so Peter calls believers not to be stagnant and to recognize that there's a deep longing in our hearts uh, for something we can try and fill that with all sorts of things and and all sorts of actions, and all sorts of pastimes, and all sorts of uh, measures of influence or success, or whatever that might be. But at the end of our lives, there's, there's no one who can satisfy us at the deepest level, at the core of our beings, other than God alone. And we talked about the metaphor of, uh, that Peter uses of longing for the things of God like a newborn baby longs for milk. And we talked about how babies long with intensity, and they long with that sense of devotion that only the only mom can really satisfy. Of course, we joked about, uh, I made a joke about Rowan when we were young, our first child, our oldest Rowan, how dad, I could not satisfy Rowan's deepest longings for mom and what mom could provide to him. And the same is true in our lives that deep down uh, we have a longing that only Christ alone can satisfy. And so that was a little bit of what we talked about last time. In this week, in this passage, I think Peter's call to us is to be a people. And he has two metaphors here that he uses to describe what it means to be a people who are following God, a people of God. And the main idea here is that God calls us into being a community through Christ. He calls us to be a witnessing community, but he calls us to be a community of people together in Christ. God, God desires a people. You know, sometimes we can sort of truncate the gospel message to just be about my individual relationship with Jesus. And of course, that's true. We don't want to lose that. That's sort of an important part of our evangelical heritage, that something is wrong in me. I am a sinner. I fall short of God's grace. There's a problem. And uh, I can't pay the price for my sin. And yet Jesus came to pay the price. And through him, I can be reconciled and brought back into relationship with God. And that's very true. Uh, but 
the gospel is also larger than just me and Jesus. God has a mission, and that mission is to redeem his whole world and to draw a people unto himself. And so here in this passage, we find, like I said, two metaphors that Peter uses to describe the community, the people. Be a people, says Peter, that are seeking God and following God. We might say we once were lost, but now we're found. Once we were lost, once we were isolated, separate, but now we are found and we are brought together because of what Jesus has done for us. I remember um, when I was first, I've told this story before, I remember when I was first thinking about going to college and I had gone out for a college experience weekend out to Eston, Saskatchewan, and I was spending sort of the week, uh, a few days there, sitting in on classes and just kind of seeing what the school was about. And I got to stay in dorm, which was fun. And I remember sleeping up on the, the top bunk of this bunk bed, and uh, one of the professors from the school made the, made the effort. He chose to do this. He came over before 8 in the morning and tromped into the dorm. And uh, I, I was half awake, but he sort of woke me up and invited me to come to breakfast with the rest of their community group. You know, there was something quite special about being just this random kid. I was 18 at the time from Dryden, Ontario. Here I am in Saskatchewan. And this professor who doesn't need to reach out to me, doesn't need to engage with me at all, right? He's probably got better things to do at 7 in the morning. Purposely comes over to the dorm to invite me to come out for breakfast with him and his small group. And there was a sense of being welcomed, of being chosen in some sense. I was sought, someone sought after me and found me and invited me into something bigger than myself. And as much as I had, you know, gotten to check out the community and, like I said, gone to classes and whatnot, it's not the same as being sort of welcomed into a smaller group that's going for breakfast, right? And there was a sense of camaraderie and welcome and embrace that I could just be part of this group. I, I, was, I was once an outsider. Now I had been welcomed in to be an insider in some sense. And there was just this, this feeling of welcome and being chosen and being found that was just so pressed home to me. I think it was significant to me choosing eventually to go to school there. And I hope, I pray that you've had moments in your life where people have reached out to you in that way. But if you haven't, and you think, gosh, that would be nice, hear today that that is the sort of welcome and chosenness that Jesus Christ wants to extend to you. That when you were alone and in a place where you were felt unfamiliar, perhaps unwelcomed, where you were once an outsider, God has come and entered into your life and has chosen you to be part of his people. He wants to welcome you into being part of the people of God. And so as much as you may choose Jesus, or we talk about the choice, will you choose God? Will you have a relationship with God? And that's very important, and that's very true. Hear first that God has first chosen you. And he went to the cross for you because he loves you that much. While you were still a sinner, not because you were good, but while you were still a bad guy, as I would tell my kids. While you were still a bad guy, Jesus died for you so that you could become a good guy. <laughs> that makes sense to the four-year-old, I think. A life with Jesus, of course, being chosen means then that we're called into a life in community, a life with brothers and sisters. Not a life just sort of on your own, 
sort of flying by the seat of your pants somewhere, but a life in community. I've said this before, but I think it's worth saying again. You can't be a Lone Ranger Christian. You can't sort of say, I'm just going to follow Jesus, but I really don't want to be part of relationship with anyone else. I'm just going to sort of ride off into the sunset on my horse and not see anyone ever again and kind of do my own thing. You can't do that. The, the local church, the gathering of believers, is not our idea. It's God's idea. It's God's heart. He loves this. And Jesus is right at the center of that work where he is our foundation. He's where we are so different in our backgrounds and our experiences and our upbringings and our economic statuses or whatever, our education. We can all be very, very different, right? But the thing that holds us in common, the one who is our foundation, is meant to be Jesus alone, that he is the foundation. He's the one we hold in common. And it's through our faith in Jesus that we're being made into a new people. So all that to say, look with me again at chapter 2 of 1 Peter. Look with me again at verse 4. And listen to what Peter says here. He says, as you come to him, as you come to Jesus, this is who he's talking about, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. And now it's halfway through a sentence, but that's, that's the verse. Uh, just kind of pause there. There's a comma, not a period, right? So as you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Just linger there for a minute. A couple things. Notice how he says, we come to Jesus. And I think that indicates not just our initial potential coming to Jesus, like choosing to follow him. I think that means something to do with our daily choosing to follow Jesus. As you come daily to Jesus, there's something about a personal relationship there that's going on. As we continue in fellowship with God, and like I said last week, you're not called to just be a convert. You're called to be a disciple. As you carry on in a relationship with God. And a disciple, we said, a disciple is like a student, someone learning under someone else. Uh, some of you are in the trades. That's your business, right? And you have apprentices who can come on and learn the trade. And they learn the trade by spending time with the master. There's an element of education off on the side, of course, where they are also taught by other masters. Brilliant. Great. But a large portion of your education is the on-the-job sort of shadowing, you might say, those that know the craft. And you become an apprentice by putting in what? You need the hours. You need the time spent. That's the measure of your success in your apprenticeship. Discipleship in Jesus is like an apprenticeship. You spend the time learning and watching the master. You spend time with him. He is our teacher, Jesus. Of course, this is why the disciples call him rabbi, right? Because they spend time listening to him, following him as he teaches. And now Peter calls Christians, and we said this last week, right? Not to be stagnant or apathetic in their walk with God, in their apprenticeship, but to grow, to be hungry for God like newborn children with that sort of intensity and devotion like we talked about. And now this is what Peter's describing as he comes to this verse. That's in the background, right? As you come to him, as you continue on in your apprenticeship to Jesus, as you come to him, the living stone who was rejected by others, and we'll get to that in just a moment, he says, so now you yourselves, verse 5, 
like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. And we'll get to the priesthood part in a minute. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through, through Jesus. But as we come to Jesus, the living stone who was rejected by others, we can then expect that as we follow and are apprenticed by the Master, there'll be a measure of rejection we too might experience. We follow one who was rejected. And in the same way, we will experience a measure of rejection also. And that doesn't just mean sort of, you know, intense persecution from whatever. That could happen in, in sort of the mockery or harassment or, or criticism or dismissal that comes from people. As you might say, you're following Jesus. We can expect a measure of that. But look what he focuses on. We are being built into... Uh, a new living, pardon me, a new living building together. And, and this is something very similar to what Paul says in Ephesians 2.20. I have it here in, on the slide. Paul says in Ephesians, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. That's the same sort of metaphor that Peter is using here too. Look again at verse 5. He says, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house and so this is the metaphor paul chooses to describe the people of god the people who decide to be apprenticed in jesus the people who are following christ he says it's like you're becoming a building and the one who set the building in place is jesus he's that cornerstone and what does a cornerstone do well it provides foundation it also provides alignment doesn't it it provides a sense of direction of where this building is happening Here's where we're starting. Here's where it ends. This far and no further, right? This is the sense of alignment. And a building also, of course, denotes some other things. A building has a particular function. A building has a particular purpose as well. Uh, so our function and our purpose as a people of God need to be derived from Jesus. Not just from our best sort of ideas of what we can or should do, but from what Jesus says we should do, right? And that sense of foundation, again, is built on, on Jesus. Uh, Jesus is, is the foundation of the church. And, and that's what Peter stresses home here. Now, the other thing that buildings emphasize, of course, is that someone dwells in a building. Right? You're being built into a spiritual house. And what Peter does here, in some sense, is pick up sort of the temple imagery to make a point. A temple imagery. So in, in uh, Israel's scriptures, in the worldview at the time, right, you would have temples. And the temple would be the place where you would go to meet the deity, whatever the deity would be, right, in ancient Near Eastern times. And especially in the Greco-Roman Empire, you have this. You have various temples with various deities in those various temples. And now Peter's saying, you're being built together as a spiritual house, as a house of God, and it sounds like temple language. He's making the point of saying, just as God is present, you could think, in the temple like a house, in the same way, now God is present in you as a people. And though you are not a temple in the sense of a building geographically somewhere that you have to go to, now as a people of God, the presence of God is meant to come and dwell here with you. You are filled with the Spirit of God. Not just individually, we talk about that, but also corporately, that the Spirit is present as we gather corporately together uh, you know, Sunday after Sunday, or whatever it might be, whenever we might meet. Now, again, back to the temple language. 
in the temple in ancient Near Eastern times, and I've talked about this before, you would have an idol in the temple, right? Uh, the idol represents the deity to the people. Sometimes they look really weird, you know? Or they're made of wood or iron or whatever it might be and have a bull head or a snake or whatever, it, whatever the thing is that the idol represents. And the idol is sort of the focal point that represents the deity to the people, and the people worship the idol to kind of get their worship back up to the deity in some sense, right? It's kind of the channel through which you do the stuff. And in God's story, in Genesis, we read a very different sort of narrative, that God makes his world as a sort of temple, that God is not confined to a physical building somewhere. All of creation is made like his temple. It's a temple cosmos. And then when you get to the part in Genesis 1 and 2 where you should be putting the image in the temple, right? What happens? God makes man and woman and fills them with his breath and makes them bear his image. And so instead of a, of a rock, kind of idol somewhere in the temple, God's word says, no, you are the image of God that represent God into the world and who are called to gather like priests the worship of God back unto him. And so that, that comes right back full circle to what Peter says here about the character of the church. That as Christians, as, as the community built into the spiritual house of God, in the same way we are meant to be the place where God dwells, but we're also meant to be like priests, where we, where we uh, sort of live out the character of God into the world as witnesses of who God is, but we're also called to sort of gather up the praises of God and point people back to him. And so Paul uses both of these metaphors to describe the church. In fact, in, in Genesis 1 and 2, the same verbs used to describe what Adam and Eve do in terms of tending and keeping creation are the same verbs that the Old Testament later will use to describe the priests. And then that same priesthood language gets extended forward into the story onto the people of God. And so two things, very importantly, that we are like a temple, like I said, filled corporately with the Spirit of God. And that means we're called to reflect him into the culture. We're called to love self-sacrificially. We're called to put away sin and to seek goodness and truth and holiness. We're called to extend his grace into the world, to extend his shalom into the world. But we're also like priests. We don't offer animal sacrifices anymore, but we're called to offer spiritual sacrifices says peter to offer ourselves in priestly service to god so look again now at verse 9 he says but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light go back again to verse 5 where the first mentions priesthood you are to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So we're not offering animal sacrifices. So we're like a temple, but we're also like priests. You might say, well, then what's the sacrifice? We're not offering animal sacrifices. Well, again, Paul makes a very similar point in Romans 12. And in Romans 12, verse 1, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to god which is your spiritual worship what's that mean how do you do that 
Well, in some sense, to offer your body as a spiritual sacrifice is simply to say, Jesus, my life is yours. Do with me as you will. I offer myself to you. You are my master. You are the Lord of my life. Send me where you want me. Apply me in this apprenticeship to the job, to whatever you decide I should go and work on, right? You have apprentices under you. You can say, well, you're going to go work on this now. You're ready for this. You grow a little more. Now you're ready to go do that on your own, right? And in the same way, we say to Jesus, form me and shape me. Use me for your glory and for your kingdom. We offer ourselves uh, a spiritual sacrifice. And the other passage that's similar to this is Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13, verse 15 says, let us then, this isn't Paul. We don't know who wrote Hebrews, by the way. Um, but it's been accepted as biblical canon. We can talk about why it's in the Bible if you want to at another time. The author of Hebrews, I had a professor who, who was sure uh, that the author uh, is one of the women mentioned in Acts. He was, con he was like convinced of it. It would be very cool, but we just don't know. Does, the, the author is not identified. So that's why we say the author of Hebrews says, through him, let us then continually offer up a sacrifice of, so not just a sacrifice of my body to Jesus, but what else is our spiritual worship? A sacrifice of praise to God. This is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So our sacrifices as priests is not just giving our very lives to God, but it's also our praise our praise is a sacrifice. We bring a sacrifice of praise. There's many songs that are attributed in this sermon, apparently. Right? Is one of praise and worship, but we're also called then to declare, what do you say? The fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. We're called to declare the goodness of God, to proclaim God with our speech, and to live for God with what we do. Namely, in the example given in Hebrews, is to share what you have with others. It's an extension of you loving them course there's lots of wisdom needed in how you do that exactly but the point is this that your words are a spiritual offering as a priest and your actions are a spiritual offering as a priest so all that to say be a people says peter be a people be a temple people who are filled with the presence of jesus and extending that to others be a priestly people who give yourselves in service to god who uh, live for him who praise him who speak him, who are, who, you know, Jesus is quick on your lips and in your hands and your actions, right? In what you do. And so in both of these, God is working in his church. I think I put it this way. There's a new sort of purpose as a temple and a new sort of vocation as a priesthood, a new sort of purpose and a new sort of vocation. All of that means that this is, this is really in some sense the mission that, that the people of God are called to. This is the mission that we're called to. You have a purpose. When you come to Jesus and you're apprenticed in Jesus, you have purpose. He has a plan. We often will say things like, he has a plan and purpose for your life. You go, great. Tell me what it is, please. Would like some details? Well, here's some details. In a broad sense, not in a particular sense, but in a broad sense, you're called to be a priest and a temple. You're called to be part of the people of God. And that means that the great commission to go and to make disciples and to baptize and to teach is not the pastor's calling, per se, or just a pastor's calling. It's not just a missionary's calling. The great commission is meant to be the mission and calling of every apprentice, disciple, baptized believer of Jesus. 
that is your mission as much as it is my mission. It is not my job to just go and make disciples. It is, if you're a disciple, that is your job also. I had a friend who was uh, telling me that in their church recently, someone had shared about the Great Commission and, uh, you know, preached on it. And after the service, uh, my friend's friend, who was doing the preaching, was telling my friend afterwards. He said, after the service, I had four or five people in the church who were like established, older people in the church, or not necessarily agedly old, like older, you know, like they were in their 70s or something, but sort of founding families, core people in the church, whatever sort of term you want to use. They came up to my friend, my friend's friend. It's getting complicated, isn't it? My friend's friend who was preaching about the Great Commission. They purposely said to him, that's wonderful that you shared that. That's not for me. I'm not into that. God hasn't called me to that Great Commission. He said it would be one thing if sort of one couple said that, right? And it's like, well, that's funny, but you're wrong. He said he had four or five different groups or individuals come and say they were offended that he had preached on the Great Commission. They were offended that he had the audacity to say, that is your mission. Not just the church generally in terms of leadership's mission. Not just we have programs that seek to do that. But that that is your calling as a temple person, as a priestly person that your life would sort of radiate with the love of God and others would see that in you and be attracted to that, that you would go and make disciples also. Um, and then it made me think, goodness, when was the last time I preached on the Great Commission? I remember doing it a few years ago, but maybe just to drive it home again this Sunday, as it's the Sunday that we have. Uh, friends, that is our mission. That is your mission, uh, to follow Jesus, to go and to make disciples. Now, to do that, to be a disciple-making people, going and teaching, is to do that in a world that struggles with who Jesus is. And I like that Peter makes a point of this. He says in, in, in chapter 2, verse 8, he talks about that Jesus is a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. Peter points out that for many, Jesus is a stumbling block. That means that as you seek to live out that Great Commission, as you operate as a temple people, as a priestly people, you will encounter opposition. Jesus is a stumbling block for a lot of people. And one of the reasons Jesus is a stumbling block is because Jesus says things that are not very politically correct. And Jesus does things that get people riled up. And Jesus says things that don't always sit well with us one of the things jesus says is in john 14 6 i've got it here john 14 6 jesus says i've got two oh that's verse two wait 14 6 jesus says i am the way the truth and the life and that would be good and then he goes on to say and no one comes to the father except through me now that's tough because what that means is contrary to how many might feel about the world, Christians believe that all roads do not lead to God. Jesus isn't saying that you can follow Buddha or you can follow your own sort of New Age mysticism or you can follow sort of whatever, take from here and there and somehow construct some sort of spirituality that will in the end be good enough for you 
Jesus is very clear. I am the way. No one else can go to the Father except through me. And so Christianity has a, an, ex, uh, an exclusivity to it, an exclusivism to it, um, which is not very inclusive. And that means it can be a stumbling block. We don't, we don't follow just a, a sort of set of moral teachings that are sort of more or less similar to other religions, and so we're all just sort of get along. You know, to say that all religions are, are actually similar is not only just so egregiously, it's so egregiously ignorant of, of, the, of the, you know, particularities of various religions. Um, it's so simplistic and arrogant to just say, well, all, all the religions are just kind of the same, aren't they? It's like, really? No. Stop. Jesus says, I'm the only way. That's tough. That can be a stumbling point. Uh, I watched an interview recently of uh, a Christian who was interviewing. Are there kids here? There's no kids here, eh? All the kids are down? Suddenly became PG-13. Wow. Uh, anyway, this guy was interviewing a former witch. That might scare you. It shouldn't really scare you. Anyway, she was a former pagan. She practiced witchcraft. Okay. And... Uh, She'd practiced witchcraft uh, in her family for years, like generational, they had practiced it. She didn't even realize exactly what all it was uh, until some stuff started happening. And um, she was sharing her, she's become a Christian now. She was sharing her testimony. So Jesus, like, delivered her out of some stuff. And uh, it came when her dad committed suicide, actually, uh, as part of all the junk that they were dealing with. And so dad took his life there was major demonic activity and oppression going on and they realized they needed to get out of this stuff and um, she was now reflecting on that in this interview and she was talking about the dangers of opening yourself up to sort of witchcraft stuff in your life and, and that at first that can seem rather innocent in some areas right you might not be like trying to channel demons but you might think it's fine to do fortune telling or do something with tarot cards or get a Ouija board or something. Right, you know, maybe you don't. If you don't, that's great. But maybe you're just ignorant and you think, oh, that's fine. I'm just, it's kind of fun. And she was talking about how there's a deep desire to connect to something spiritually. Like as people, we have, and Al talked about this morning, we have an innate, that we're spiritual beings. We have this innate desire to be connected spiritually well, the connection is we have a deep longing to be connected to God. But we can, again, try to fill that with all sorts of things. And she was saying, as she reflected on her, on the brokenness and, like, the evil, the actual evil that happened in her life and in her family, she said there was a longing to connect to something that was true. But we were, like, we were way off the mark. And that's the longing that you see in so many people today who then get engaged in sort of New Age mysticism because they're longing for something spiritual and they don't know where to look. And you're know, reminded back to this passage by Jesus, right? It's not that there's lots of ways. And it's certainly not that all of those potential ways are equally good. In fact, some are downright evil. Jesus says, I'm the way. I'm the only way. That longing you have for some sort of spiritual connection is not found in sort of some manipulating of other spiritual entities or some sort of power struggle. But it's in submitting to Jesus Christ alone and bowing the knee. So Jesus can be a stumbling block because you don't get to sort of pick and choose. Uh, it's either sort of him or nothing else. 
Of course, the other example of Jesus as a stumbling block is he just tells us we're all sinners. And that's not very fun to hear, is it? Uh, so that can be a bit of a pain. Uh, the moral evil in the world is not outside of you somewhere. It's like it's in you. You contribute to it. I'm part of the problem, right? The Bible says, and again, this is Paul in Romans 3.23, right? Everyone sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all in in this together. No one's perfect. No one's better than anyone else. And yet, verse 24 of Romans 3, and yet God, right? And yet God, by his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. And he did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. This is Romans 3. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin, and people are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life and shed his blood for us. So Jesus is a stumbling block. You have to either deal with your own sin, you have to deal with the fact that your life might not be pointing towards him. You have to deal with him at some point. Either we'll surrender to him and bow the knee, or we resist him and say no, but it's dangerous to ignore him. He says he's the only way to salvation. And so Peter has set that out here, that as you go to live as temple people, as you go to live as priestly people, you'll encounter uh, resistance to Jesus, the stumbling block that Jesus can be. And that's all that to say, that's okay. Just because there's resistance doesn't mean you did something wrong. Jesus was resisted by like literally everyone, right? Even his closest followers desert him at the end, right? Jesus experiences a lot of rejection. And in some way, as you follow him, you will experience a measure of rejection also. And so Peter has set out here, again, just to sort of drive home our main points as we wrap this up, that we are meant to be a people. This is God's heart. This is God's heart, not just to save a collection of random individuals, but to save us for community, for life together, for relationship. And the foundation and the one who does all of that is Jesus himself. He's the only one who can bring us together as a people. And that means we have a new purpose. We are like a temple filled with the Spirit of God. We're also like priests called to live for him and, and live out his character in the world, to extend his presence, to offer ourselves to him uh, in obedience and in love. And we do all that in a world that sees Jesus as a stumbling block, and yet we press on, don't we? And yet we press on. And by the end, in verse 9, the last bit I want to just touch on, what does Peter say? Once again, he says, chosen race, this is who you are, a royal priesthood, a holy, a holy nation. He's picking up here how uh, Israel's described and then applies that to the church, which is interesting. But why does God choose us? He says, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So Christian today, what's your calling? What's your calling? Proclaim the excellencies of the one who saved you. That's perhaps a good question for you is, is the goodness of God quick to be spoken of in your life? If you've encountered him, uh, is he quick to be spoken of? We proclaim the one who calls us out of darkness and into his light. Um, and in that, uh, we're called to be, right, we're a people chosen by God, founded on Jesus, living out his holiness and his mission as a community, quick to speak of what he's done for us. He's chosen you. 
He's chosen you despite your brokenness and your sin. He chooses you. He, he keeps choosing you. Where others have maybe stopped choosing you, he keeps choosing you. He loves you. And God's heart is that all would come, that none should perish. All would come into everlasting life. So there's a, there's a call for all of us to say, uh, God has chosen me. Will I choose him? Will I choose to follow him? And then even if I've said yes to that, which, which many of us have, to then think again, okay, I have chosen him. And the call of this church is to reach the lost, to be a people who, who once uh, said, I love the end of verse 10, right? Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And to extend to others that call. Once, not that we're so great, I once was blind, but now I see. Once I had not received mercy, now I've received mercy. Come see what Jesus has done in my life. And come see if he won't do the same for you. Right. How do we do that, then, in some practical ways? I want to I just touch on a couple things. I did, the, I did the classic preacher problem where I said, as we close, before I was at the end, oh, should have looked ahead. It's very, very short. Choose hospitality. One way that you can extend the grace of God to others is around your kitchen table. Welcome people home. Give them a meal. It's okay if your floor is a little bit dirty. Choose hospitality. Uh, embrace others. Invite them over. Talk about real life. Uh, talk about what Jesus has done for you. Choose to actually be a friend to your neighbors. Choose to get to know them as people. Not as projects to save, but as people that uh, God loves, that you can love too. Uh, and when the moment comes, like I said, uh, you, can, you can say, once I was blind, but now I see. So choose hospitality. Let the table uh, be the place of mission and evangelism. Uh, share your faith. It can feel daunting to do that, uh, especially because we know Christ can be a stumbling block. Uh, but our mission is greater than our fear. Our love is greater than our concern of what others think of us. Uh, so share your faith. Love your fellow priests. You're part of a body. You're not a lone ranger. Uh, love the people that Christ has brought you alongside, even when it's really hard to choose to love them. Uh, and finally, do I have a last one? Yeah, and I said this already. Open your home uh, to witness to your neighbors. Let, let, your, let your, your living room, your kitchen, be the place of mission and outreach. It's one thing for us to host a thing here at the church, and invite people to come and see. It's another thing to send us all out through the week with the, with the call to go and be. And the mission of the church is not just to come and see. There's moments where that is wonderful. We have a concert. We have a services and people come in. Uh, but Jesus calls us to go. To go and make disciples. And that means going and living for Christ in the neighborhoods where he's planted you. Uh, with the people that he's, he's brought alongside of you. So go and love those people around you. And do that with gentleness and, and grace and love and courage uh, that comes from the Spirit as you seek to live for Him. Um, as we proclaim His excellencies. I think that's the end of my slides, hey, Del? Did I have a last point that I didn't put somewhere? No, there it is. Good. Would you stand with me? Let's pray to that end and uh, ask, ask the one who is our cornerstone uh, to lead and guide us into that.
So Heavenly Father, this morning, uh, as a people of God who are formed by your Spirit, who are chosen by you, Jesus, first we just say thank you. We say thank you, Lord, that you choose us. We thank you that you've chosen people to belong to you in relationship. We thank you that you're not a God who asks us to just do things because there's no sort of purpose that you need to be appeased in some sense that we're just sort of slaves for you but lord you give us a free will and a desire to actually choose to love you and follow you and uh, lord we say thank you we thank you that you choose that you call that you invite us uh, just like my friend invited me over for breakfast uh, when i was young and without any community uh, in a place that was strange to me i was invited in Jesus, you did that to the 12, you did that to the 70, you did that to the thousands, and you continue to do that with millions and millions worldwide and through the centuries, calling us to yourself. And Lord, I just thank you this morning that um, you call us not just to make us right, but you call us into purpose and into a family. It's sometimes a very dysfunctional family, Lord, and we pray for grace to live that well. Uh, but Jesus, it's your family, it's your people, uh, it's the church that you're building. So Lord, with, with grace and with patience and with humility, we pray that you would come and inhabit this temple people uh, here in Dryden, locally. Lord, would your spirit come and fill us afresh. And Jesus, would you send us as your priests into the various places you've called us, uh, into our, our families and workplaces and marriages and what, whatever it might be, school, Lord, that we would go uh, go and be and, and invite others uh, to come and, and hear the truth, to know the truth, uh, that they too have been chosen and welcomed by God, uh, that he loves them, that you love them. Lord, we'll do that wrong in all sorts of ways. And so we pray today uh, for grace for ourselves uh, to live this out. Uh, wisdom, Lord, to know uh, what to say how to listen well to those around us, uh, but with our hearts seeking, Lord, to uh, live for you, to show love to those around us, to proclaim your excellencies. Uh, Lord, uh, to say where once we were blind, now we see. Where once we were not a people, now we're a people. Where once we had no mercy, now we've received mercy. Uh, so Jesus, I just pray that you would uh, unite us together in love for you, that you would grow us deeper in you. Jesus, uh, for those who have not made a commitment to follow you, I pray today, Lord, that by your spirit you would draw them to yourself, that there would be a sense of longing and calling, I want this in my life. I want to be part of this. I want to know God's love. I want to be saved. I want to be part of this family. Lord, for those who are watching online, and maybe there's some who don't know you, either here or online, Lord, would you speak to them, call them to yourself today. And if that's you, it's a matter of simply saying, Jesus, I, I want to follow you. I want to love you. I thank you that you died on the cross for my sins. I believe that. I accept it. Come and live in me. Give me a new heart. Give me a new life. I want to follow you. And as you do that, uh, the word says that God comes and makes his dwelling within you. You become part of the, the family of God, the people of God. And so, Jesus, we pray that uh, 
in that sense, this message would go out and draw many to yourself. But also, Lord, that you would deepen in us a sense of living for you. Uh, those of us who are apprenticed already, our apprenticeship's been going on for a little bit. Uh, Lord, help us to share our faith, to live with hospitality, to proclaim you with love and with winsomeness and joy and grace and courage. Jesus, we thank you uh, that even though you're a stumbling block, you're also a good, good father. And you welcome us home. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to live out that character here in Dryden. There's many, Lord, who need to know you, and many who need to know that they can be welcomed home. So help us to do that well, uh, even in our own neighborhoods. Lord, we pray for our city. We pray for the brokenness that is here. We think of the drug issues and the, uh, the brokenness in families and marriages and all sorts of stuff. Uh, Lord, we just pray that your grace, your covering, your healing uh, would surround all of that. The people, Lord, who are struggling. Uh, family members who are represented here who are struggling. Uh, Lord, our school and our school systems. Lord, we pray, have mercy on us. Forgive us our wickedness. Bring your righteousness to bear. Uh, Lord, in our governments and our elected officials, help us to love them well. We pray blessing over them. We pray your salvation uh, to come and meet them. Uh, Jesus, we lift up our, our city and our province and our nation, our world. Lord, uh, your kingdom come. Your will be done, we pray. We say thank you, Lord. We say thank you, Lord. Amen.